The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. When I was pregnant with my first son, I you know, was working on a show. Uh, my boss pulled me to the side and said, you're pregnant. You need to go home and you need to raise your babies and support your husband's career now. And I knew it was going to be difficult. I did not expect there to be a prevalent attitude that uh, parents in the industry shouldn't be working. That's Heather McQuillan, whose own experience facing parental discrimination in film and television spurred her and husband Sean McQuillan to found the Canadian chapter of Real Families for Change, an organization fighting for more parental consideration in the screen industries. Women in Film and Television Canada Coalition, in conjunction with Real Families for Change, has released the results of its Family Care Report, a cross-Canada survey highlighting how the pandemic has compounded childcare challenges for women in film. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we welcome Heather and Sean and the report's author, Susan Britton, to talk about why the industry should be trying to keep more women in the workforce. I'm Susan Britton. I am basically a policy and research analyst expert working in the Canadian film and television industry and have been doing so, golly, for the past 30 years. I got my start in television um, by working at a local TV station where my father was the general manager. So I did benefit from uh, nepotism at the early stage of my career. But it was interesting because my brother and I both did, you know, summer work there. And while he got to work in production and work in the newsroom and in sports, I was at reception and in, in administration and in accounting. So from that standpoint, I did not see uh, an area of interest for me in the Canadian television industry at that time. I then moved to Vancouver and started, uh, I have a business background and a business degree. I started working for uh, BC Film, which is now Creative BC. And from there, I actually joined CanWest Global when they took over the TV station CKVU in Vancouver. And given my BC Film experience, they had a benefit fund that they had to run. So I began working for them, uh, managing their um, production funding. After about seven years, I was then the Western Director of Canadian Production for CanWest Global, which was now a national network by that time. I then actually went back to university, did my master's degree in communications, because I found the research and policy and regulatory environment very appealing to the way my brain works. And so I got very involved with that and probably over the last 15 years have been a policy and research consultant working with uh, the federal and provincial agencies like Telefilm and the CMF, as well as Creative BC on some work and the Canadian Media Producers Association. And so that ultimately led to me being on the board of WIF Vancouver, which I've been on off and on for years. I'm a founding member of WIF Canada. It's the WIF Canada coalition of the five WIF chapters across the country. And I'm the vice president of WIF International. My name is Sean McQuillan. I'm a once in future federal NDP candidate, and uh, I actually originally started in theater. I attended Studio 58, 
the acting program in Vancouver. And uh, I ended up behind the camera one day because uh, I'm from Alberta and I had my gun license and I was asked if I wanted to handle weapons on set. And so my first day on set about a decade ago was handing Dolph Lundgren a rocket launcher. Since then, I've worked um, in set decoration and props behind the camera, as well as uh, pretty active within my union, attending both uh, national and international conferences for IATSE. My work there, um, it's been really eye-opening how every jurisdiction is different, how uh, people are treated uh, at different parts of the world and different countries. And so that kind of led me to federal work, which has led me back into uh, advocacy work in the film industry itself. Uh, I love working on set, but I also love being with my children, and I, I don't think the two of them need to uh, be at odds with one another. My name is Heather McQuillan. I am the Executive Director of Real Families for Change Canada, and I sit on the International Steering Committee for Real Families uh, International. I started my film career, and I, I don't usually talk about this, but I did start my film career in front of the camera. Uh, I was kind of uh, raised in, in film and acting uh, as a kid. And uh, eventually made my way to Edmonton, where I uh, attended Victoria School of Performing and Visual Arts. Graduated there and came out to Vancouver as a professional ballroom dancer. When I retired from dancing, I, I found myself back in film. I kind of came home to, to the film industry, uh, working behind the scenes in set decoration as a buyer. When I was pregnant with my first son, I you know, was working on a show. Uh, my boss pulled me to the side and said, you're pregnant, you need to go home and you need to raise your babies and support your husband's career now. And I knew it was going to be difficult. I did not expect there to be a prevalent attitude that uh, parents in the industry shouldn't be working. Um, so we contacted an organization um, at the time, they were called Moms in Film, and uh, we opened the Canadian branch to start looking at some of the solutions. And we found that we had both moms and dads in uh, Vancouver. So we uh, changed over to Real Families for Change uh, to reflect our membership. What we found is it's not five or 10 parents that needed some, some solutions. There were hundreds. And we've continued to have hundreds and hundreds of emails monthly with parents trying to work out the logistics. So we were really excited to be part of the study and really excited to have some concrete recommendations for the industry coming out of it. You've touched on a few, you know, personal experiences, but I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the background of what led up to women in film and television commissioning this research. What happened for us at WIF Canada, uh, the coalition, fortunately, we came together in the fall of 2019 to talk about coming together as a group to lobby and advocate at the uh, federal level, to have a voice at the federal level that was currently missing in the debate in this industry was the perspective of women at the national level. And so the WIF Canada Coalition came together. Uh, we went um, to the WIF International Summit in New Zealand as a group and really came together on what it was that we could do. And so, we were actually well-placed, unfortunately, to deal with the pandemic when it hit. Um, we had a coalition. We had to all immediately go to learning about how to present all of our programs online. And we started doing national webinars, talking about the issues, talking with government, talking with broadcasters. 
and we put together a uh, webinar series nationally. And one of the ones that we were most interested in, we called our Cross Canada Check-In. And it was for members of chapters across the country. And that's when childcare came up as a big issue of concern to people, work, parents working in our industry. So we heard that loud and clear. And I thought, you know, okay, this is something we really need to explore. And similarly, at the same time, Government of Canada came out with their emergency COVID funding for arts organizations, creative industry organizations. And we applied for the family care project, as we called it then, which was to look at exactly what the issues were for childcare in the production industry. And that's when we reached out to Heather and Real Families for Change and started what became this, this, this wonderful collaboration because they were ready to inform us of the direction we needed to go in looking at some of the issues. They had only a few months previously pulled their members about uh, childcare and the major issues. So they were well-placed to advise us so we worked together with them to do the survey and get the results, analyze the results and consider where we needed to go. And so that was the impetus. It was really our members saying, hey, this is an issue. And I looked at it and, I, you know, it, it's a funny thing when you talk about childcare in the abstract, it's sort of one of these issues that's off to the side and you don't really think about it. It's not connected to the larger economic labor shortages, you know, and so it tends to be held up on its own. And so that when I started to talk to Heather, it was like, oh my gosh, this is way worse than I was even expecting. You know, the stat that, that like up to 30% of women in the industry were fired for being pregnant blew our minds. And we thought, oh, you know, we really need to get into this. And that's what we did. We worked with Heather. We got, we did research. We did the survey. We had a team of researchers around the world and it was a small project fund that punches above its weight, I would say, because there were a lot of uh, people who contributed many volunteer hours to make that project a reality because it came to be one of our top priorities when we started seeing what the issues were and the realization that it's tied to a systemic issue, that we can't solve childcare issues and the relationship that it, it requires of mums, uh, particularly in this country, as unpaid labor. And even if they do go to work with available childcare, there's the wage gap. So are there are all these issues and, you know, when they step out of the workforce, then they don't have as big a pensions down the road. And it's this extraordinarily unrecognized cost on caregivers that is not accounted for or valued in our country. And ultimately, to me, that became the underpinning to the whole report. So let's set the scene because there may be some people listening who don't know what a typical work week looks like right now for most film and television workers. Can you talk about that and some of, you know, the other challenges that that presents for those with young kids? Well, Heather and I uh, both work on and off set. I work primarily on set with the shooting crew. The hours vary. So um, some days you can start at 7 a.m. on a Monday and work until 8 or 9 p.m. that same day. And by Friday, you can have a 7 p.m. call time and be working until about 6 or 7 in the morning and Saturday. They call those Fratterdays. The schedule and timing really shifts based off how long you shot the previous day as actors are guaranteed a 12 hour turnaround where crew are guaranteed around a 10 hour turnaround. And 
that guarantee is only for a financial penalty. That isn't, they will push the call to ensure you're getting 10 hours of rest. That just means if they infringe on that 10 hours of rest, you are going to get paid a little uh, extra stipend or, or turnaround penalty. The hours can vary. Um, tonight, I'm actually working. I'll be working from 1.30 p.m. till I'm going to guess 2 to 2.30 a.m. in the morning for tomorrow. And uh, I, you know, and then next week on Monday, I start at 6.30 in the morning. So my weekend time and turnaround is not, is not very much. And those hours are not conducive for childcare at all. And a lot of the um, uh, expectation is that either you have a family members or a partner take care of your children. And the f scenes we're shooting and what we're doing does not require the hours that we're doing. Even the night filming uh, exteriors, there are ways to do it and the way we're doing it. It is a choice. And we need to make sure that the industry makes choices that is more um, sustainable for the workers and in particular families. And Heather's got experience offset with the office crew a lot more. So, Yeah. Um, so even when you're working outside of shooting hours, so in pre-production or even post, a lot of those hours, um, you're, you're typically working a 60-hour work week, 12 hours a day. And even when they're more standardized, so we, t we tend to have a Monday to Friday schedule, the question becomes, where do you find childcare? for 13 hours a day. And that's often pretty impossible to find. So even when you you work in, in the office setting, um, it's still not conducive to finding childcare. And a lot of the regulations in childcare actually don't work hand in hand with what we're required for film. The other um, question that comes up is, we work on contracts. So you might work for three or four months and then not need childcare for a month or two months. And childcare is, it's quite expensive. So if you're committed to a space and you're not working, uh, that becomes very difficult for parents as well. Let's move to some of the report's recommendations. One of the things that you talk about is mandating safer work weeks which is one of the issues that's also arisen with the IATSE job action in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I think one of the biggest things that our, our uh, brothers, sisters and kin down to the South are fighting for with reasonable rest is, is to get in the U.S. They actually don't even have tw uh, the 10 hour turnaround that we do in Canada. That's one of the things that they're fighting for. And in Canada, we're, we're trying to tell them you. We're going to have to do even better than that because we know from our experience that that still gets pushed. That still gets manipulated in a way that even though it's in our contract, they'll just pay the fine. They just want to make sure that they get this done as quickly as humanly possible. And it doesn't really consider the human toll. Instead of adding additional shooting days at the end of a schedule, they'd much rather you work a 16-hour day. And that's problematic. And that's a culture thing. And that the recommendations really are, are a lot about the culture shifts in the industry. Because right now, over the past several decades, not only have the wages not really increased uh, properly, but the culture has gotten worse and worse and worse. And we're seen as disposable. 
Where do unions fit into this conversation? I think one of the very clear messages was that women especially don't have confidence in their union's ability or willingness to protect them from parental discrimination. Absolutely. That's a big question. And I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that there are multiple levels of responsibility and it it varies with unions. What we need to consider is how much of a barrier is the childcare issue or the caregiving issue? Um, because we, we're not even talking solely about childcare, but about adult care, adult care responsibilities as well. But really, it ends up being a systematic issue within unions because of the way workers need to engage in uh, getting work. So there's a, an on-call system, often newer members have to be on call and ready to take that call that might come in at 10 p.m. the night before for a morning shift. And we just simply don't have the childcare infrastructure to allow a parent to get care that quickly. And when you're not working a, a permanent full-time job, it's pretty hard to pay for childcare when you only have these sporadic shifts. So what happens is that parents, um, and really specifically mothers, are unable to take those calls, unable to get their days, and unable to gain union membership. Um, And what that does is it means that the union membership that is responsible for voting on motions to advance initiatives to remove these barriers is really missing the voices of parents and specifically mothers who aren't able to gain membership. It ends up preventing a huge number of women from participating. And then once they are in membership, those barriers often prevent them from participating, from voting on motions, uh, from engaging in their their union and having a voice. Um, So these issues aren't dealt with. At a time when the industry is really in need of labor, why do you think there hasn't been more proactive work in this area to try to retain and attract women? I think it's easier to create campaigns for recruitment than it is to deal with this. It has to do with the need for connection between the industry and government bodies with regards to licensing. Um, We have two industries that are fairly fixed in their belief system on how things operate, and those belief systems do not align. So the childcare industry and the film industry, um, their belief systems are just complete opposite ends of the scale. Um, And I think In the past, women with children have stepped out of the industry because of the logistical issues. And that means that they're not able to have that voice. It's easier to recruit and continuously recruit new members than to work on reducing the attrition of uh, women with children. Susan alluded earlier to that very surprising stat that 27% of women who took part in the survey had been fired while pregnant, which a lot of people don't think can happen. But I know from working on the news side of the business that, yes, it can. What were some of the other really surprising findings that came out of the research? It really showed how starkly the difference was in childcare 
uh, issues between English Canada and Quebec. In Quebec, where they have the subsidized daycare program, while it isn't a daycare program that lends itself to the film and television industry because of the way the hours and, and contract work is, it does give them some ability to be able to go to other events and training opportunities, etc. And it well documented that it very much encouraged women to partake and go to go back and join the labor force. And as we all know, without, you know, women in the labor force is a very great impetus for increasing GDP. If women aren't in the labor force, you're losing a huge swath of labor. But what I also want to come back to, I want to mention about the unions. They were helpful, very helpful in them in providing uh, access to their members and promoting our survey. They're aware they have difficulty in these areas, but it really does require a major rethink. One of the issues, I think, for the unions that I see is that the un- th- this industry, the film and television in- production industry is transient. So predominantly, production industry is for foreign service production. It's, it's just slightly bigger than the Canadian production. They um, are predominantly U.S. studios. And so what we find going into this is that they will go where the money is, where it's most economically feasible for them to produce. In Canada, that could be Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, other centers. And so there builds in this uncertainty that the unions have to represent their members at the same time that they have to get their members work. And so it puts them in this uneasy alliance with the employers, a bit of a catch-22 on those issues. And because of the transients, if the unions in Vancouver don't make the concessions, the unions in Montreal may. And so what we, when we were talking about all of this towards the end of the report, it was that no one particular group is accepting responsibility for childcare. Whose responsibility is it isn't grammatically correct, apparently. So the title of our report is Who is Responsible? And it definitely requires somebody to take the initiative. And since government funding is the underpinning to virtually all Canadian and foreign production, whether through Telefilm and the Canada Media Fund for Canadian production or the federal and provincial labor tax credits for film and television. And since that is government taxpayer money, and there is no quid pro quo, there is no requirement that by giving these employers this money to hire locally, there's no hiring standards to meet. There's no uh, requirement to have a balanced and representational workforce with this money. And so that's why we look at the tax credits as going, that requires the government. It requires the government to initiate it. It requires government, industry, and unions to come together, which is why we recommend this task force on both the bigger issues and the over time, like looking at tax credit and funding policy, but also dealing with this really detrimental work-life balance in this industry. One of the things the report notes is that childcare right now is not an allowable production budget line item. Yes, and Heather can probably speak more to this, but Keeping Families in Film in the UK is doing this, is lobbying for um, childcare to be a production line item by 2024. And we took a similar timeline for our recommendations on the basis that, you know, it's three years. It gives us time to deal with these issues and come together because it is very complex. There's a local and provincial daycare licensing at the local level. And then there's the federal approach to childcare and how do we make it work for the film and television industry? We really believe that it has to be a production line item. And that way, when it's part of the budget, then all the funders pay a portion of it. And that is a way of institutionalizing and recognizing childcare and, and caregivers as a valuable part of our workforce. 
are you optimistic that there's, you know, a willingness and a clear path forward here? <laughs> you know, um, I, I do see that there is a willingness from a lot of party, parties involved. Is it convenient? No, no, it's not convenient for, for anyone. I think we can all agree on that. But the reality is, you know, when you build a, a house, you are expected through the muni- municipalities to put the required BC hydro poles and the correct trees in front of your house when you build it. We can expect companies to build the infrastructure to support the requirements of the job or to engage in the infrastructure of, of having that. We have seen willingness through the unions. It's, it's slow, though, and I think it, it's a matter of pulling those pieces apart. We've engaged with the municipalities and the provincial government talking about aligning the childcare needs and the film industry needs, making sure that we aren't legislated out of a job, specifically mothers in the industry. If there is not an infrastructure um, and if legislation works against the hours that we need to work, then the, the province has to address that. We need to find a solution. So is there a willingness? Absolutely. There's a a complexity to it, though, and I don't think it's a a quick answer or as quick as I'd like it to be, for sure. I would like to say that I feel confident that change is in the air, and to a certain degree, I do. But I do feel like it is a major slog still, that everybody sort of recognizes it as an issue. But again, it always seems to sort of be pushed to the side because there is not the the connection of the dots of women working in Canada and, and contributing to the economy. There's, it, it, it's its own little thing out there, and that bothers me. It bothers me that um, we, we can work towards solutions, but we really need everybody to step up. And that, I think, is going to require building alliances. And the next phase of this will require being active on, in discussions with other groups. I mean, there are other organizations such as Women in Trades that have very similar contract work, strange hours, that they are finding difficulty in typically male-dominated industry of getting recognition for childcare needs as well. So I think the culture shift is starting to happen, but I think it's going to take a lot of work. It feels weird that we're having to have this discussion in 2021. One of the things we haven't touched on I, I don't think is is how the pandemic really compounded this for a lot of families. Yeah. I mean, the numbers were staggering when we were doing the preliminary research and, you know, like 100,000 women had left the workforce in Canada only by the summer of 2020. And it, it was staggering. And we were it was interesting because it did not matter what conversation I was having with people. If you mentioned child care, they all of a sudden could personalize it. And I think this is what we have to help do is personalize it. Like you have examples from Heather and Sean, is that every one of them, whether a mother, a grandmother, a single mother, or an aunt or an uncle or a father, all could tell you personal stories about it. And that's when the light bulb goes off. And that's when people go, yes, I see it now. I see how integral it is to the conversation. Otherwise, we are going to miss a whole group of parents in the middle of their careers, leaving the industry, and even more so, you know, Indigenous, you know, women and people of color, Black, Asian women, and people trying to make a a living in this industry, they face similar 
if not more discouraging discrimination. And so, you know, we really have to give value to what is the culture in this industry. It's seen as a very rich industry that people make a lot of money, but people end up making a lot of money in a very short period of time and miss meals and don't have full weekends and are gone from their families for three months at a time. That's not healthy. That's not building. We need to prioritize the next generation of our children as citizens and as people of Canada that we want to grow up in a certain way, respectful, well cared for, quality childcare is critical to that. The one advantage to the pandemic, I will say, is that we're in such a fast paced industry that a lot of people had slowdowns for the first time in their lives or the first times in their careers. And the ability to even spend that period of time with their families over those shutdowns allow them to reassess what's important in their lives. And I don't know if the industry has really allowed people that opportunity naturally. And so one thing about the pandemic that I will say that adds on to that is I think that's why we're experiencing job actions down in the United States is because we realize that the sacrifices that we do make in this industry aren't always worth it. And we do need to make sure we put emphasis on our family. Is there a thought any of you would like to close on? This is the next step of creating equity and acknowledging the ways that we end up without um, certain groups of people at the table. If we want to talk about having equitable societies, um, then we actually need to put in the infrastructure and the supports to create that. We can't just keep, you know, saying we're inclusive and having, you know, a banner or really raising generations of women to be part of the workforce if we don't have the infrastructure to support that. And this is a complex logistics issue. I'll I'll definitely say that. The fact that we have, you know, layers of technically discrimination is the employer's, you know, responsibility, but that's very different when we're, we're in these transient workplaces. At some point, we need to acknowledge the connection between equity and logistics of of what we're creating. And I, I think if we all come together, we can do that, but it's gonna take some work. It's definitely going to take some work. Well said. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much. Colin. Thank you for having us. Thanks, yeah. Really happy to talk about this. It's such an important issue. for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Alison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.